0: Okay, let us pray together a non-liturgical prayer (laughs) because worship is also liturgical and non-liturgical. Dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful first day of the Sunday of Advent. Today, may we receive your love, may we receive your grace in our liturgy. Lord, I pray that you would give me the right words to share what. I am bursting to share about in terms of your grace in liturgy. I thank you for this opportunity and I bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so grace in liturgy. This is the topic that I guess I signed up for it, but it was on a list. And when I thought about it, getting ready for today, I thought, grace in liturgy. Now, this is, I think, the first Sunday where we're done with the history, and now we're gonna start making it really practical, all the grace. And this is, these teachings in the next few weeks are all based on this book, Grace in Practice, A Theology of Everyday Life by Paul Zoll. This is a fantastic book. It is not. It is so readable, it's so accessible, it's not a heavy book of theology. So I thought, okay, so I'm gonna start talking about grace and liturgy, Let's see what Paul Zoll has to say about it. So, I looked for the chapters. Okay, let's see here. Grace in politics, grace in war and peace, grace in singleness, grace in, wait a minute, there's no grace in liturgy, what am I gonna do? (laughs) Well, hopefully because I've studied liturgy, I can figure it out. But, what I like to do then, if I'm using a book like this, is I say, okay, what does Paul Zoll, whoops, wrong way. What does Paul Zoll say grace is? And then perhaps we can get to what grace is according to what he says. And of course I have all my theological definitions, but I really liked what he did with it. So he sets us up in the first chapter by telling us about the law and the failure of the law to change people. The law was instituted As a covenant between God and his people it was kind of a manual here this is what I want you to be the kind of covenant people I want you to be will you follow this but built into that was grace but the law the people of Israel were not able to say yes to accept that grace so Paul's all says today we as Christians the law and grace, what do we do? And he says, there must be another way to accomplish what it purposes, the happiness and goodness and patience and kindness to which it aspires. And he says that that other way is accepting God's grace. And he defines God's grace this way. Grace is being loved when you have nothing to give in return. So the failure of the law to change people, and there must be another way. So he goes on to talk about how grace is what he calls one-way love. It's grace is being loved when you have nothing to give in return. And we know this from scripture. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. So one thing we know about grace from here anyway is that it's not an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. And he goes on to describe how for us in our lives, if you think back, if you take an inventory of your life and you think back, the moments that you were perhaps the happiest or had this moment of joy, it didn't come from within yourself. It came from someone outside loving you. And when I thought about that, I thought, yes, that makes so much sense. The moments of joy that I've had in my life is when I have felt truly loved either by God or by someone else that was very close to me. So in that sense, I do really embrace what he says about grace being receiving that one way love but today we're talking about liturgy and liturgy is as many of us know it's a way of responding back giving god love back so what is liturgy and this is a very famous saying you've probably many of you have heard this lex arandi lex credendi Which basically means, um, it basically means that what we pray is what we believe. Or right belief leads to right worship. But I really like what, oops, back here. Okay, I really like the way Aidan Kavanaugh turns it around. Because he says, Christians do not worship because they believe. They believe because the one in whose gift faith lies is regularly met in the common act of worship. In other words, it isn't that liturgy or liturgy leads to belief in the sense of what we know in our heads, but rather... We worship, in worship, we receive Christ. And it is that experience of worship in which we receive Christ that leads to right belief. It leads to faith. So it's not a mental thing. It's not a theology thing. Yes, I totally affirm that when we read our liturgy, we read some of the best theology there is. But it's not just the words. It's the experience of God's love that we encounter through those words. So if we wanna look a little bit closer at liturgy and worship, one of the things I really hope that you can walk away with today is that our liturgy that we have is a pattern that God has established way back in the beginnings of the Old Testament this isn't just something that came up in the first century, the second century, as people started developing liturgies, they just them out, kind of got them out of their hat. No, it is, it's based on a pattern of worship that God has given from the very beginning. And the best way that can be summed up is perfectly in line with what Paul Zoll says about grace, and that is that we can see worship as the receiving of God's self-giving love. So liturgy and worship is a vehicle of grace, and it has been God's communicative nature to always initiate a response in us, to always initiate that response. We can see the whole of salvation history as a self-giving of God. Because it is God who has always taken the initiative to approach mankind, humankind. He called Adam and Eve in the garden. The central event of the Old Testament narrative is the calling of Abraham, and Abraham responded in faith. And Moses was called. It took him a little bit, a while, to kind of grow into that same response of faith. But eventually he became a great leader of God because he was responding to what God said to him. And God called his people through events and people were responding to those events through the Passover, through the parting of the Red Sea and most of all through the provision of the tabernacle where God provided this beautiful tent of worship so that the people could respond to his love. Because the covenant was all about God loving a people so much that he wanted them to be his people. And then we see like Israel failed, but then God sent the prophets. And the prophets' main purpose was to ask the people of God to renew their response of faith. And yet they responded, and yet they did not respond, they they failed in that. So in all of that, God was asking them to worship him, to respond to him, he gave them celebrations. We'll talk about those more in a little bit. But the celebrations that he gave them were the way that they could celebrate and respond to him. And those celebrations are built into our liturgy too. So when he was unable to see to receive the yes from the people. He sent his son, Jesus, who was able to say yes to the father always. He was able to say, yes, I respond in love to you, Father. And he gave his life for us. And so the beauty of, and then I talked about this a month ago, the beauty of salvation is that we're brought into union with Christ through his yes. And now we are able to say yes to God's love through our worship. So the pattern of worship is always the response to a call that is received from God. But it is only through Christ in the spirit that we respond to the Father's love. Again, there's grace built into that. So if you walk away from anything today, what I want you to hear from me today is that worship is not about what we do without the understanding that worship, what we do, is that we receive. So when you come to worship and you enter into the liturgy, look for grace, look for the ways that we can respond to God's grace, because that is truly how we find grace in liturgy. So, why liturgical worship? And liturgical worship is not the only way to worship, but I believe that there is a built-in grace in liturgical worship, Because again, I feel that we, in liturgical worship, the words are there for us to respond to. We don't have to work it up in ourselves. But there, there is other ways that liturgical worship, I believe, are really important. And that is because liturgical worship in itself is a small s sacrament. It's the sacramental means that we receive God's love. It's a material thing in a sense. It's words, it's symbols, it's pictures, it's things, it's color. Um, It's all these things that are embedded into human life but that lead us into worship. So I want to remind you what a sacrament is, an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And in that sense, worship is that, is a sacrament. And it is, the best way to look at it, I think, is that it's a divine and a human celebration in which Christ has ordained that the things of the earth bring us into union with him in the unity of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do it ourselves. We can worship God in many ways. I can worship God in my prayer closet with just one candle and Nothing else, yes. But if I didn't have all of this, I don't think I could do that. Because this is the way I'm built. This is the way we are as people. So another thing that I want you to understand is that when we talk about word and sacrament, we don't want any false dichotomies. Often I will hear things like, well, in order to really worship God, it has to be a non-verbal experience because words are just words and words get in the way of experiencing the real thing. And I really believe that this is a false dichotomy. I think that instead we should look at worship as more than verbal, not nonverbal. more than verbal. And there's a reason for this. And I, I love this quotation from Jürgen Moltmann. And that is that we often perceive more with our senses than we realize or was intended. Sensory perception requires conscious interpretation for often enough it precedes the conscious interpretation. In other words, we need words to interpret what our experience is. Otherwise it doesn't make sense to us. We have to be able to delineate what it is that we're experiencing because we are Verbal people, we are people that have been given the gift of language, so why would we want to rule that out when it comes to worship? And what I love about liturgical worship is that it is the most beautiful language. It is poetic. It's not my language. Um, Our worship and common worship, they worked on this for like 15 years. They had the top liturgical scholars basically in the English-speaking world working on common worship to bring it into contemporary language that sings. And I really, I love that we use common worship because I believe it is really one of the best contemporary um, liturgies. So we as human beings communicate by matching our thoughts to our words and our actions. And it is by doing that we think and speak. And our worship, the culmination of our worship is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is that supreme act of worship because it involves body, mind, and soul, both cognitive thinking and sensory perception. It moves the worshiper from the realm of thought into the realm of experience. So one of the things that is really interesting is that Oops, sorry. Um we learn and change through these kinds of experience. There's been a lot of research now into neuroscience, and I always love to read things that's, that just confirm the fact that the way God set things up is just such a gift because we know it's how our brains work now. And there has been um, a lot of work um, on how the brain receives and stores information, and that when we receive information in more complex experiences, like not just reading, but doing something like liturgical worship, doing something like the sacrament, where we are not just hearing words, but we're doing things, we're receiving, we're visualizing, all of our senses are involved. That that kind of experience makes it easier for our brain to remember and to receive that information. And so Rob Mall, who used to come to our church, um, wrote a book about this. He said that when worshipers stand, kneel, and raise their hands and cross themselves or bow their heads, they are adding neurological richness to their experience. Their experience becomes more powerful and more likely to promote change. And I have experienced this myself because I think I related to you a month ago that for years I struggled with grace and law. And it wasn't until I started regularly practicing um, communion every week that that all began to begin to make sense to me. And I really believe that part of that was because my whole body was involved, and God always designed it that way. And we're going to look a little bit now at Israel. Um, another person that some of you have probably read: We love what we see. We love what we worship. Oh, okay. We um, Jamie Smith's book. We love what we you are what you love yes right and he's written a lot of books on liturgy and he talks about human beings as liturgical animals which some people have found a little offensive. of that but we are liturgical animals his point being is that we all have liturgies if you look at your life you have patterns I would assume that many of us when we get up in the morning we have kind of a typical pattern mine is grab the cup of coffee um, that is a liturgy we all have liturgies in our lives It's just what liturgies are we practicing? Is it, and and Jamie loves to, he has this great illusion if you've read any of his books about the liturgy of the mall and talks about the whole liturgy of the mall, And that's a liturgy that we practice and what does that liturgy teach us? Consumerism. So what does our liturgy teach us? It teaches us that God loves us. So God's gift, Liturgical patterns are built into God's provisions for worship from the Old Testament to the New. So what I'd like to talk about here really briefly because I think it is so kind of awesome is how our worship has been formed from the beginning of God's relationship with Israel when he gave them the law. That the law actually provided patterns for worship that we still practice today. There was a lot of grace in the law. Um, So, there's always been we've always had sacramental structures and events the burning bush the rainbow and the whole sacrament sacrificial system set up for covenant keeping keeping in the old testament for the people of israel those are also sacraments and here i'm drawing a little bit on my friend uh john calvin um who believed that old Testament sacrifices were actually um, sacraments. He called them sacraments. He called the Old Testament sacrifices the sacraments. So a little bit about them. What we usually hear about sacrifices is that, you know, the people were given, um, you know, these means of having their sin atoned for. So it was kind of a, really like, a oh my gosh, you know, dress up in the sackcloth and give this animal. It's all about like repentance and sin and groveling, but that actually isn't really true at all. That isn't what was really at the heart, because for every sacrament, every sacrifice in the Old Testament was accompanied by a meal. Did you know that? I don't think a lot of people know that. I've been reading um, some of the Old Testament scholars that write about sacrifice, and they have basically discerned that there was a liturgical path. Does this sound familiar? Repentance, remembrance, and thanksgiving. That this was basically the liturgical path of Israel. And that these sacrifices always what they were to signify was our fellowship with God, and that they were essential for community formation and identity. Any of this sound familiar? So, the order of execution of a multiple sacrifices in the narrative leads to a progressive rationale of propitiation, consecration, and fellowship. Repentance, offering, thanksgiving, and fellowship. So, the burnt sin, this is just to walk through this really quickly. Um, this was the usual pattern when there was a festival, a Jewish festival of the kind of sacrifices that were offered first, the burnt and the sin, and the guilt, the, um, guilt offerings, which are the ones we know so much about because they signified that God is holy and we can't approach him without there being a sacrifice. And for us, it's the sacrifice of Christ. Then there was the grain offering. And what the grain offering was really about was, guess what? Remembrance. Um, This offering was called the memorial portion for the Lord. And what was to be remembered had depended on the type of offering. But the general intent was to remember the Lord's blessings and provision. And then we have the peace offerings, which was Thanksgiving for peace with God and the communal meal. And what was really unusual about the peace offering as the peace priest and the people ate the sacrifice. Because eating the sacrifice symbolized that the people had been forgiven and that God's grace and fellowship was present, that the people had made peace with God. In the peace offering, God is the host, And having received the gift from the worshiper, which was the self-offering symbolized in the animal, the God gave himself back to the people in a renewal of physical and spiritual life. So again, this is a pattern 2,000 years ago. And it's a pattern that we have today. So when someone tells you that the Catholic Church invented liturgy, Talk to them a little bit about um, Leviticus. Okay, So um, there is another aspect built in to all the Old Testament sacrifices and celebrations, and that was these were all liturgical acts of remembrance. So what were the things that Israel was remembering? They were remembering, remembering in the sacrifices. They were remembering they had sinned. They were remembering most of all that God had forgiven him and they had fellowship with him. The Passover. This is moving into the place where God started providing celebrations for the people. Um, So people of Israel marked time by the remembrance of sacred history. And again, this is really interesting because we often talk about how the Christians took like the pagan festivals, I think this is a little bit overdrawn because I actually think the Christian festivals that we have mimic more the Jewish festivals than they do the pagan ones, uh, Christmas set aside. Um, But the Jewish people also were given festivals that in a sense reordered all the festivals of the pagan cultures. Because the pagan cultures festivals centered around harvest kind of the order of history so like there was always a barley festival in the spring to celebrate the incoming of the grains these are pagan festivals but what God did is he turned those around and instead the festivals now became not uh, measuring or celebrating physical natural history events in the calendar of the year but rather sacred history. So the Feast of the Tabernacles reminded Israel of their wilderness pilgrimage when they lived in The Passover was a reminder of their redemption from Egypt. The festivals all helped the covenant community remember great events of the past. And in a sense that's hard to describe, it was a reenactment that helped them realize that what they were celebrating is true now and is true for all generations. So, remembrance involves storytelling and it's a story which shapes our identity. So built into that idea of remembrance is that stories become our identity. We all have a story. What is your story? What is your grand story? And our stories, when we become Christians, become Christ's stories. And for the people of Israel, their stories were a part of their identity as a nation, because no one else experienced what they had experienced. And So it was a part of their identity. And so, in a sense, when the people of Israel, they celebrated and they read their holy scriptures, they opened up their holy scriptures, and they heard that they were inside the story. So our favorite, N.T. Wright, talks about how the sacramental, sacrificial system pointed as a regular pointer back to the great acts of redemption. And just as Israel's celebrations speak of her reconciliation with God, we also are inside that historical eschatological phenomena in our church calendar year. We are doing the same thing. Today is the first day of Advent where we are not just celebrating the incarnation, but we're also looking to Christ's second coming. And one of the things I really encourage you to do when you enter into these church festivals is really take the time in your quiet time to examine how you feel about these festivals. For a lot of people, Christmas is a really hard time. It's a hard, they miss their family that have passed on or they remember some, maybe some not so great Christmases or times when they were growing up so in a sense you can take that give that to God and say I know for me I was talking to Rich about how often when I come into Advent there's such melancholy and I'm supposed to be happy right no well no I gotta take that I'm feeling melancholy I have to look at that I can't try to be something other than I am but then I was thinking, you know, it fits in a sense because we are, as, as um, Matt preached this morning, there is a lot of darkness around us and there is kind of this melancholy ache for it to be different. So in the celebrations, in our church calendar, we need to be really living that, not just, oh, we know about that, that's this, but we need to actually be finding ways that we can identify with the story that's embedded in the celebration. So now I wanna talk a little bit, we're done with that kind of the Old Testament history and I think it's a wonderful history and helps us appreciate the depth of uh, the gift part of our liturgy. So now I wanna talk a little bit about the Eucharist as the pinnacle of our Sabbath worship and the remembrance of our story. Because everything in our service, from the minute you enter here, everything is anticipating the Eucharist. So one of the things that Paul Zoll talked about is that when there's way too much emphasis in a worship service on the sermon, the sermon tends to be often about law. This is what you should do. This is how you can make yourself better. And when the sermon is everything, preceded by a little few happy, happy songs of worship, Um, then we forget, we don't really experience God's grace, I think, in the way we do in our liturgy, because we experience and receive God's grace. Ultimately, the ultimate experience of that is the celebration of the Eucharist, where we celebrate our union with Christ. So Rowan Williams says, holy communion, then, is the way in which the soul of the gospel story is played out in our midst. This is our story. So in the Eucharist, we remember salvation history. We remember the crowning events of salvation history. So there's all this remembrance built in, but there's also celebration. And most of all, we become guests at Christ's table, just as the disciples did in their post-communion meal. And I had an experience recently where I was part of a communion service that was a non-denominational communion service where they didn't like read the words of institution. Um, They were like, this is kind of like a private time. We're not going to have any words. Um, (laughs) 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 We're just going to celebrate communion. And there it is. There's the bread and the wine. And go up and have at it. I mean, they said it a little bit more nuanced than that, but that was kind of the message. And I was like sitting there. Oh my gosh, they didn't say the words of institution. This is like, you know, this is like 2,000 years of church history they've just thrown out. And then I thought, okay Mary, calm down, calm down. Why is this so important to you? Why is it, and I go, it's because I want to hear Jesus inviting me to the table. I don't want to just go up and get it. And that's what we hear when we receive the words of institution in our communion. Just close your eyes and picture Christ there addressing his disciples, but now he's addressing you. He's saying, come, take, eat me, because this is how Christ comes, this is how I meet you. I meet you inside yourself. This is how I have always celebrated with my people. I have always celebrated with a meal. Because in the meal, I give myself back to you. So that's what we should be doing in the Eucharist. We become christ guests and what more grace is there in that but again we ha- we invoke the spirit because it's his presence that makes this real no other thoughts no magic hocus pocus. it's the spirit and then we experience ourselves as the community of the king in union with christ in each other so There is another aspect of the liturgy that is not just the here and now, which I think is the most important, is that we come and we receive grace, we hear God's address, we hear Christ's address, we receive him. When you come to worship, don't worry about what you're going to do. Read the liturgy, hear the words of grace in the liturgy. They are full of grace and respond to them. But there's another way that liturgy, I believe, has so much grace. And that's kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier with some of the discoveries in neuroscience and liturgical theology talks about this a lot. Jamie Smith talks about this a lot. And that is how these acts of doing and thinking and feeling and seeing ultimately form who we are, because our liturgies form us. So how is the liturgy formation? it reflects the path of the Christian life. And we're gonna get to that in a minute. In liturgy, we practice how to be faithful. So hopefully what we're saying here translates into what we're doing out in the world. So I would like you to open your bulletins and I would like to take the next 10 minutes and look at our worship today. (laughs) <laughs> and just because I might not get to this because we might run, run out of time, I want to talk about the Advent wreath and the words that I read today. Because the words that I read today, I was like, oh, wow. That's just, that's just ex- actually what I was like wanting to talk about. And it is, blessed are you, sovereign Lord, God of our ancestors. You called the patriarchs to live by the light of faith and to journey in the hope of your promised fulfillment. May we be obedient to your call to be ready and watchful and to receive your Christ. That's worship. Okay, so we start, and I apologize, you know, I realize I have no pictures of Advent. I only have pictures of like Easter and baptism. So I'm going to start gathering pictures of Advent so that next time if I ever do something like this again or talk about Advent, I have Advent pictures. So first... We gather, and that gathering is a huge symbolic thing. I mean, I think all of us love it. I think that's why we're here, is we love that processional with the cross. And what that does is the processional is the sign of the community coming together under the sign of the cross. Again, it's our, we're coming together and saying, this is our identity, it is this cross that is coming down this aisle. And we are entering into a liturgy, celebrating a holy mystery, joining together with the entire mystical communion of Christ. It's not just about us. It's always corporate. And if we look at our gathering for our Advent, um, there is always, and this is one of the things that's really wonderful about common worship, is there's usually a set kind of gathering prayer for each season. And this was our Advent prayer. So as we gather, we are also being reminded that now is the time to awake out of sleep. And it's in our songs together that we're joined together in that unity. (laughs) So I want to look at different aspects of each part of our worship and look at them in terms of this is what actually we're supposed to be doing every day. This is actually the liturgy encompasses all the practices of the Christian faith. So. The call to worship is the invocation of the Spirit. And every day when we get up, we should be invoking the Spirit to come into our lives that day. And with that comes a prayer for purity of heart. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Um, So in our Collect for Purity, we are reminded of that. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. I think we all probably have that memorized. We've said it so many times. But that has taught us that we need God, that we need his grace. We hear God's address in Scripture. Um, One of the beauties about, I think, Gathered worship is that we hear it we can close our eyes and listen I notice many of you when I'm reading the gospel have your eyes closed and it I really love it because that's just the way we're supposed to be experiencing God's word um, One thing I might encourage you is to consider in your own scripture reading at home is get one of those apps where the um, Scripture is read um, I know the ESV has an app there's several different apps and rather than reading the scripture in the morning or whenever you read the scripture, evening, night, does not the time is not what's important, um, to actually listen, to turn on that app and close your eyes and hear the word of God and hear the word of God speaking to you, just like we do in church. And it really has changed the way I've experienced worship or the scripture at home. We affirm our faith. Okay, let's, um, the sermon, of course, is the exhortation and i do believe that our sermons here are um grace-filled i don't think we receive sermons that are this is what you have to do and this is how you do it all i think that's not our church that's one of the reasons why i think i love all souls so much but after the sermon we recite the creed which is a way of affirming our faith so our faith is real to us we affirm all the details of it every week so that when someone might come up to you and say, well, do you really believe Christ rose from the dead? It's like, well, yeah, I just thought about that a couple of days ago. I actually said that a couple of days ago, that I believe Christ rose from the dead. And the more you repeat those words, they really do become a part of who you are. Confession. The liturgy teaches us how to confess. It should be incorporated into our own daily life. And the peace teaches us how to see and accept peace. The peace of the Lord be with you, and also with thy spirit. It's a way of practicing that when we come into encounter with our Christian brothers and sisters, we acknowledge the spirit in them. Not just that they're a nice friend, but that actually they bring Christ to us, and we bring Christ to them. We exercise generosity in our Uh, Gifts, So you can just kind of see this path that is basically this liturgical path, which is the path of our Christian life and practice. So the Eucharistic prayer, let's look at that a little bit more closely. So um, prayer of consecration. Let's look at the prayer of consecration. Oh, I meant to also say that when we hear God's word, it's also an act of remembrance because many times, especially in the Psalms, we hear salvation history repeated so that these Psalms, the way Israel worshipped, part of their worship was remembrance and celebrating. Um, and today it was just a beautiful song, again, about God coming to us in his salvation. So, But let's look at the prayer, the Eucharistic prayer. So the Eucharistic prayer begins basically with praise. Um, praise and supplication. Lord, you are holy indeed, the source of all our holiness. Grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your holy will, these gifts of bread and wine may to be us, the glory, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the praise and the supplication that these gifts through the Holy Spirit would be the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And then we have the remembrance component. In the same night that he was betrayed, took bread and gave you thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take, eat, this is my body which is given for me. Do this in remembrance for me, of me. And again, don't think of remembrance as just like a reenactment. It's not a reenactment in that sense, it's a reenactment in the sense that it is bringing the past into the present and saying what happened 2,000 years ago is still present and effective for me in this room. So our remembering marks our acceptance that this is also true today of us, that we have been given the gift of Christ. But then there's also a self-offering in this, similar to the offerings of Israel. Um, So go down just a little bit, kind of into the middle of this uh, prayer of consecration. (gasps) We offer you this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We bring before you this bread and this cup, and we thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence and serve you. Send the Holy Spirit on your people and gather us into one kingdom so that we, with all the company of heaven, may praise and glorify you forever. So we receive Christ in the bread of wine. We receive his love. And in the closing procession, we respond in praise and thanksgiving. So this is our liturgical path that we celebrate every Sunday. And there is the grace in this pattern that helps us not only receive it today, but also hopefully helps us learn how to practice and remember that tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday because it has been given to us and we've responded back to God's love. So that's all I have for now, but I wanna leave room for a few questions. We yeah, have a minute. five minutes for questions. One, 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 minute. one, one minute. minute, oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs>